Well, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 31. We have some real estate to cover tonight. Deuteronomy 31, and there is one basic premise, really, that I've based everything I believe as a preacher on this one premise. It's a foundation that's so key that I really, I can't fathom how anyone can step into a pulpit without this bedrock understanding or without this belief. It's the singular reason that I'm so motivated week in and week out to preach. And in fact, um, the singular reason is given as a promise of God in the gospel presentation of Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 verse 10 says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That is the word of God. The scriptures, they reveal to us the very mind of God where we get eternal thoughts, we get divine statutes, we get heavenly truths. And in fact, just before Isaiah 55, 10 and verses 8 and 9, we get a sense of the vastness and the scope and the infinite nature of the mind of God. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. But it's not just the, the word of God is, is wonderful in that these are the divine thoughts of God. That's true. But the Bible isn't just a museum piece that we look at as if it had its heyday when it was written. The scriptures today, this moment, are powerful. They're active They're life-giving, they're fear-producing, they're worship-inducing. And it's through the conviction of the Word of God that men are driven by the Holy Spirit to lay down their rebellious ways, to turn instead to the God of the Bible. No other God. The God of the Bible for salvation from sin, to become worshipers of the Holy Triune God as revealed solely and only in the Holy Bible. And so I preach because when the Bible is opened, And when it is explained and when it is applied, something is guaranteed to happen. It's guaranteed. Hardened hearts melt under the preached word. Hurting souls are mended under the preached word. Prideful men are humbled under the preached word. Sinners are redeemed under the preached word. The church is edified and built up under the preached word. And in fact, the church gathers primarily to be under the preached word. That's what we do. And now as we make the final approach to landing this plane known as Deuteronomy, we see Moses making this same emphasis, and it is on the Word of God. And in fact, very interestingly, for chapters 1 through 30, the emphasis of the whole book has been on what Moses says, on what he is preaching. And this is the inspired text of Scripture. His preaching was inspired as written here in Deuteronomy. He's giving to Israel on the banks of the Jordan River as they wait orders for conquest. He's giving them the word of God in the form of these inspired sermons in chapters 1 through 30. But now the emphasis shifts somewhat. Not so much to what Moses says, but what he does and what he tells people to do with what he said. In other words, chapters 1 through 30, he presents the word of God. And beginning in chapter 31, he makes certain that Israel understands what they're to do with that. And so the sermon's end and the exhortation begins 
specific to Scripture. Now, just to review, we've seen that Deuteronomy is structured like an ancient Near Eastern treaty or covenant. And so far, we have seen the preamble and historical prologue. We went through the general stipulations, chapters 5 through 11. And then we had the specific stipulations, the real heart of the book, chapter 12 through 26. Then we had the blessings and curses, chapters 27 and 28. Last time we began the witnesses section, witnesses to the covenant, as we would see with any contract. And so tonight we finish the witnesses section and the primary witness that's viewing whether or not Israel will be faithful to the covenant that God has given, that God has made with her. The primary witness is the very word of God itself. Chapter 31, verse 26, the law of God is there for a witness against you. It is the word of God. Now, we could take many different angles here in chapters 31 and 32, but I'd like to highlight what ends up being a very climactic theme in this two-chapter section, and that is the Word of God itself. And to the Israelite families listening to these sermons of Moses, the inspired Word of God given through a prophet, the entire course of their lives, Moses says, will be determined by their view of the Bible. It will be determined by their view of the words that God gave. The Word of God is not just a marvelous collection of the various thoughts of God. It is the will of God in words, and it makes ultimatums. It makes requests. If I could put it this way, the Word of God makes demands. And tonight I'd like to show you seven demands that the Word of God makes on all humanity. Seven demands that the Word of God makes on all humanity. The first demand, the Word of God demands attention. It demands attention. Now, we've come to the end of the sermons of Moses, and he concludes by giving the official introduction of the new leader of Israel, the faithful Joshua. You remember Joshua. He was one of the 12 spies who went into Canaan 40 years earlier and had the faith to believe God would give Israel victory over her enemies. So let's look at this beginning of the introduction, chapter 31, verse 1. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. In verses four through six, he encourages Israel to have courage because it's God who will go with them. And now in front of all of Israel, Moses gives the same encouragement to Joshua in verse 7. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now, why would the Lord say, do not fear? Why would he say, be strong and courageous? Joshua's already shown courage. He was one of the 12, tri- 12 uh, spies rather, who went into Canaan, and he was one of only two that had the courage to say, the Lord will help us to conquer this land. He's also been faithful to follow the Lord into battle against the kings that Israel had already defeated. So why this extra speech about courage? Well, Joshua wouldn't just need courage to face the enemies of Israel in battle. 
probably more poignantly, he would need courage to face Israel herself. In other words, the courage to follow God no matter who else does. To stand for the word of God. And look what Moses predicts with Joshua standing right there. Peek very quickly with me at the end of chapter 31. Chapter 31, verse 29. With Joshua standing right there, Moses says in verse 29, For I know that after my death, he's speaking to Israel, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Well, now, after having officially introduced Joshua, he's officially commissioned now as Israel's new leader. Back in verse 14 of chapter 31, chapter 31, verse 14. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may commission him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. Now, right in front of Joshua, God tells Moses what Joshua can expect. Verse 16, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because God, our God, is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they had done, because they had turned to other gods. Welcome to leadership, Joshua. How would you like to take the reins of God's chosen nation and be told up front by God that they're going to be trouble? And not even directly. It's like Joshua is kind of the invisible kid in the room and God is just talking to Moses. Boy, these people are going to mess up and I'm going to nail them for it. And Joshua's like, hey, I'm right here. I'm going to be the one dealing with this. And yet Joshua would be called upon to be faithful. And so to provide yet another witness against all in Israel who would rebel against God in the future, despite faithful individuals. Verses 19 through 22 explains that God is going to give Moses a song to be taught to the people of Israel. And the purpose of the song, verse 21, and when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. This is like teaching your children a song about how many spankings they're going to get when they rebel. And then they have to sing the song every night. Now let's pray and let's sing the song about the 50 spankings you're going to get in a couple years. Over and over again. And so when the punishment comes, the song is to be fresh in their minds. The word of God stands as a witness against them. Well, now the Lord speaks directly to Joshua And once again, look at the theme, chapter 31, verse 23. And the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. Be strong and courageous. We see this again. 
And I'd like to just step forward in time a bit to the moments immediately following the death of Moses. Turn forward just a few pages to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua 1, and this is going to sound familiar to you. Joshua 1, verse 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Skip down to verse six. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. There it is again. Be strong and courageous. And yet again, is God speaking of the courage necessary to lead Israel into battle? Not especially. Look what courage is required to do. Verse 7, this is what the courage is for. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Four times now, Joshua has heard, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. To do what? To pull out his sword and fight? He's already done that. No, be strong and courageous to stay the course of following the word of God no matter who else does. That's what takes courage. It will take strength and courage to obey the Lord no matter who else does. And this strength and courage is given from the very law of God that Joshua is to obey. And look now at what the law of God demands from Joshua. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. By the way, this is what God told Moses to do with Israel in giving the song of chapter 32. Chapter 31, uh, verse 19, he said, put it in their mouths. That's a, a way of saying, make it just rolling off of their tongue all of the time. And so for Joshua, the word of God was to be on his lips. It was to be coming out of his mouth. It shall not depart from your mouth. This is a metaphor for the constancy of literally speaking the word of God to himself. You don't know what to pray. Read the Bible back to God. Those are the exact words of God. You can't go wrong praying scripture. Joshua was to meditate on it day and night. It's a word that literally means to mutter to yourself. That if you saw Joshua walking around and his lips are moving, but you don't hear anything, that's what he's doing. The word of God just coming out continually. The law was to be whispered to his own soul, to his own mind. It was to be coming off his own tongue. And only in this way would Joshua be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Only in this way would Joshua be strong and courageous. Listen, the word of God demands your attention. It demands attention. You, you can't expect to go through life as a faithful believer in Christ just taking occasional small doses of, of Scripture. How can anyone thrive spiritually when you rarely read your Bibles? How can anyone thrive spiritually being mildly interested in listening to two or three sermons a month? How can anyone thrive spiritually without thinking on the word and studying the word and making observations in the word? 
If you have never taken the time to buy three things, a Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and read your way through portions of Scripture with your pen, making observations about every verse you come to, you need to do this. You need to dive into the Word. Because the Word of God is is time-consuming. It's brain-consuming. It's soul-consuming. Or is it for you? It ought to be. I remember being asked the question as a young man, what's it going to take? When is it time? When will the demanding nature of the word of God be met in the realities of your daily life? When will the word of God become so familiar that portions of scripture just roll off of your tongue, just roll out of your mouth, that you are muttering to yourself the word of God? The word of God demands attention. Second demand, the word of God demands listening. It demands listening. Turn back with me now to Deuteronomy 31. And we see now the internal biblical evidence for Moses being the author of the Torah, the Pentateuch. People question the Mosaic authorship. But chapter 31, verse 9, Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. I don't know why anybody questions who wrote Uh, Deuteronomy, I think Moses would say, hello, I just wrote that I wrote it. But more importantly, now Moses commands that the people of God will be periodically reminded of the entire law of God. Verse 10. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, You shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess." When I was in seminary, we had an assignment in one class that we had to sit down and read the entire Pentateuch in one sitting. That we had to work our way through it. And the justification given for that assignment was from this text. That if they had to do it, you have to do it. And so it takes a number of hours, but it's a glorious experience. Now remember that we talked about last time that we see here a tension. And that tension is between the predictions of God making about the failure of Israel and yet there's a call to teach the truth of salvation in God alone to the children that at least some of them will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And right here embedded in these few verses we have a prescription for listening to the word of God. This is a formula. I've preached an entire message just on this formula. The clear implication here is that when the word of God is read aloud, it is also to be explained by the teachers of Israel. We see this same pattern in Nehemiah chapter 8 after the return from exile. That the teachers of Israel all uh, taught all the people. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So what is this prescription for listening to the preached word of God? Well, it's a six-step process. That's listed here, and I'll give you the steps. The first step, reading. Reading. You shall read this law before all Israel. The first step is the content itself. Now, we're so very blessed in our time to have Bibles in our laps. Most of you probably own multiple Bibles. 
And yet, even in the New Testament time, Paul commanded Timothy to make certain that the scriptures were read aloud in the assembly. That's so very important for us. We don't just say, well, you own the Bible, you can read it for yourself. We read it aloud together. The first step is reading. That's the content itself. The second step to this process of the preached word of God is hearing. Hearing the word of God. But unlike the Catholic religion in which portions of Scripture are read in Latin and no one understands it most of the time, the people were to hear. In other words, they were to be attentive. They were to be checked in, not checked out. This isn't just a religious exercise with one of the teachers droning on, reading the law of God, and somehow the exercise itself was to have a passive or some sort of indirect benefit that you just happen to be in the same room. No, they're to be hearing, they're to be grasping the word of God. And let me put it to you this way. If Pastor Darren or myself were up here and we just said, we'd like to read a portion of scripture, and you knew that this was the last time on this earth you would hear the word of God, I think you would be attentive. That's how we ought to be. Then there's a third step, and it's progressive. The third step in the, in the progression of the preached word is learning. Learning. Verse 12, everyone was to assemble that they may hear and learn. This is a word that is familiar to us. It means to gain information, to be instructed, to grow in knowledge. You can't rightly worship a God that you barely know. In fact, when preaching in the church goes light on Scripture, then the church goes light on true worship. That always follows. I mean, why do some churches sing songs that just repeat the same few lines over and over again? Because they don't know anything else. They're not learning. They're not growing. Never, ever does the New Testament call us to pursue the feeling of God. But repeatedly, the New Testament calls us to pursue what? The knowledge of God. You may only worship that which you know. And so the more you know, the more you learn. I've had some... I've heard say, not at Grace, or not those that stay very long, they say, I I don't go to church to go to school. I just want to be blessed. Well, learn about God and you will be blessed. I think some of you have told me that you use your brains more on Sunday than you do the other six days of the week, and that's how it ought to be. It's how it ought to be. Because everything you do Monday through Saturday is not eternal in the sense that there's eternal depths to it. If you do the same job over and over again, you can kind of check out. Not with the word of God. It's infinite. It is eternal. It's divine. There's a fourth step in hearing the word of God. And that step is fearing. Fearing. Verse 12, the people are to hear and learn in order to fear the Lord. The more you know God, the more vast and majestic and powerful you accurately see him to be, the more you tremble before him, the more you're in awe of his greatness and his might. And people will say, well, I just want to, I want to obey the Lord out of love, not out of fear. And I understand that. Jesus said that if you love him, you obey his commandments. But that love for God has to be grounded on a healthy foundation of fear of God first. It has to start there. We're not allowed to simply create a God or a Jesus of our own liking, recreating our definition of God based on sentiment or emotional need. What you need emotionally is to fear God. That's what you need. You don't need a dumbed-down, sympathetic, uh, sort of sentimental view of God in which we now make Him into our image because we want Him to seem softer. 
No, emotionally what you need is fear. You need to fear God. And that's what the reading and the preaching of the Word is to do. There's a fifth step that comes right after fear, and that is obeying. Obeying. We don't pursue the knowledge of God just for its own sake. The knowledge of God leads to the fear of God, and it leads to obedience at the end of verse 12. And when you're hearing and listening and fearing and now obeying are put together in day by day by day a lifestyle of obedience, what do you get? You get the sixth step, and that is living. Living in verse 13, that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're going over, to Jor- over the Jordan to possess. Our faith is vitally connected to life. They're not separated Show me a professing Christian whose faith and life are completely separate and I'll show you a false believer because they're not bearing fruit. Their faith is not manifested in their life. But this six-step process of listening to the Word of God, it's not a burden, it's not a weight. It's to your advantage. That's why you're here tonight. As New Covenant believers in Christ, we're not under the covenant God gave to Israel. We understand that. But we are under the covenant that God gave to the church, the new covenant. And this covenant is governed by the law of Christ, the commandments of Christ in the New Testament. But it's not a burden. It's a freedom. It's it's life. It's delight. It's joy. Listen to the Apostle John in 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. I'm passionate about the listening process. And just so you know, when I'm a listener to a sermon, I am just as passionate about it as I am when I am the giver of the sermon. And I want to exhort you first in the negative, and then I want to exhort you in the positive. Let me exhort you in the negative first of all. I want to encourage you to beware of Satan's schemes to derail this listening process in your life. And he won't do it in obvious ways. He is a schemer. He's a deceiver. He'll do it in ways that you don't see it coming. There are many things that can derail this process. It could be laziness. It could be as simple as staying up too late on Saturday nights that you have trouble listening. It could be inattentiveness that Sundays become a day to sort of check out mentally and emotionally. It could be anger. It could be you're you're angry at a spouse or angry at a child or angry at me, whatever. But that anger will derail that process. It could be that one of the elders in the church has taken a hard stand against sin in your life and suddenly you don't want to listen anymore. This is precisely where Satan would have you. He wants to derail this process because if he can cut off your listening, then he cuts off your growth. He cuts off your sanctification in Christ's likeness and suddenly Satan isn't the problem in the church. You are. Something else that can derail the listening process thinking yourself beyond need. This is subtle. Well, I've heard lots of sermons over the years. I've been in the Lord for decades. I've grown a lot over the years. And all of a sudden, it's a very slippery slope. You find yourself missing 10, 15, 20 Sundays a year because you've done your growing already. When was the first time you needed to grow in the Word of God? The moment you got saved. When was the last time you needed to grow in the Word of God? Right now. There's never a sense in which you coast. Satan loves coasters. He loves them because he can take advantage of you. We never say, I've grown a lot. I can handle it. 
you need to hear the preached word of God every day you possibly can until the last moments of your life. Let me exhort you in the positive. If you will make the preached word with the gathered people of God the lifestyle around which your life revolves, it's really simple. Take a paper calendar, uh, you know those things, paper, and make it blank. Write in all the times you need to hear the word of God, starting with the Lord's day and writing whatever times you need as well, then build your life around it. It's simple. It's a two-step process. But if you will make the preached word of God with the gathered people of God, the lifestyle around which your life revolves, what did God promise Joshua? Joshua 1.9, For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. This doesn't mean that your life is suddenly going to be magical without suffering or anguish or pain. But what it does mean is you'll have the prosperity and the success that really matters. A walk with God that's sweet, that's obedient, that's wonderful as you walk with him in this unfeathered harmony and closeness as the Spirit of God through the Word of God continues to make you more and more and more like Christ. I I can't even count the number of times I've had precious believers Tell me sometimes with tears. I can't believe how much of my life I've wasted pursuing so many things and not being in church half the time and not being involved in the church and not hearing the word of God at every opportunity and thinking that I could coast on this really great Bible study I was in 10 years ago. And with tears, regretting that time wasted. How fast does our life go? It's like that. I've never heard a Christian say, man, those decades I spent in church every Sunday were such a waste of time. I've never heard a believer say all the time that I spent studying the word and and not watching Netflix, but instead watching the word of God grow in my own heart. All that time was, boy, I I, I wish I had caught that last season of 24. I just regret that. What, What do I really need now? I need to do less of the word of God and more of everything else. You know, what's sad to me is to see a believer at the age of 75 or 80 finally say, you know what, I think I ought to spend an hour or two a day in the Word. I think it's time. How about start that now? Oh, how Satan would love to derail that process. The first demand, the Word of God demands attention. The second demand, the Word of God demands listening. The third demand, the Word of God demands faith. It demands faith. Chapter 31, verse 24 When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in the book to the very end, just making sure we know Moses is the total author, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. I want you to know this. Moses says that the word of God, the book of the law will be, verse 26, a witness against Israel. That when unfaithful Israelites compare their behavior, their their lack of genuine faith in God with the standards laid out in the law, That the law will be a witness to their spiritual failure before God. The word of God acts as a witness against sin because you can't live up to its standard. 
This is, in fact, precisely what Paul said the law does. And I'd like to take a moment and have you turn with me to the New Testament, to Galatians chapter 2. And I just want to drive this point home because the law has always had this purpose. Galatians 2, I want to show you how the law functions to drive us to faith. The law is good. The law is holy. And the law is unkeepable. Sinful humanity can't possibly possibly hope to fully attain to obedience to God. Galatians 2, verse 19. The Apostle Paul says here, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Paul saying that in his inability to keep the law, the fact that the law could not impart spiritual life to him, this drives him to have to die to the law. Meaning that instead of attempting the the futile effort of salvation by works of the law, he had to run to Christ to be made spiritually alive. And so what happened? Verse 20 of chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so in Christ, the penalty for not keeping the law is met. Paul was, and you are, as it were, crucified with him. And now, instead of the hopeless effort of keeping a holy law, you could never keep. Christ lives in you, and he has kept the law for you. That's the work of Christ in salvation. How about the work of the Spirit in salvation? Galatians 3, verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's addressing the legalism that had crept into the churches of Galatia. But he says it's the Spirit that brought about the regeneration and new life in Christ. No one will obey their way to salvation. No one will will rack up a list of good works until God finally says you've done enough. Because the problem is you've been sinning all the way uh, as well. It's impossible Jude 24 says that you can appear before God only if you never stumble in sin one time. One time. And so it must be God who keeps you from stumbling by crediting you with the very righteousness of Christ himself. Because if you try to obey your way to pleasing God, if you try to do good works to make God happy with you, you're doomed to fail. Chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you have broken the law of God once, James 2.10 says you are guilty of all. So how do you spiritually live? How do you survive the wrath of God? Chapter 3 verse 11 tells us, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Now our sin had to be paid for, We who were accursed before God had to have a substitute. Verse 13 of chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so the law was to Israel like a strict disciplinarian. It, It was to demonstrate the futility of trying to please God in perfect obedience. Galatians 3 verse 24 explains this. So then... Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. 
The law was our guardian. Uh, What was a guardian? This is a very specific word that speaks of a slave who would be assigned to a small boy in a nobleman's home, in a nobleman's house. And this slave was a teacher. He was a strict disciplinarian, and he was to watch over this child until the child came of age. He accompanied the child everywhere. He didn't let him get into mischief. He was strict. He disciplined him. And the child could never possibly please this slave, could never possibly please this teacher. The teacher would even go to school with him. And he would wait in a specially designated waiting area where all the the teachers, the slaves of the nobleman's sons of the town, they would wait there. But if the kid was especially mischievous, then he went to class with him. And he sat right with them, and it was just continual. The child goes this way. Nope, go this way. He goes, nope, go this way. He says, nope, that's wrong. Nope, nope, that's wrong. And it's just constant, constant critique and criticism, critique and criticism to train him. And you, they would get home from school, and maybe the child would think, oh, finally. This teacher would say, get some food. And bring the food and begin reciting your lessons. You will not go back to school tomorrow until your lessons are perfect. It was constant. It was oppressive. And that's what the law is. There were restraints and limitations of the law of Moses based on the fact that Christ had not yet come. That the new covenant with the freedom of being indwelt by the guiding helper, the Holy Spirit, hadn't yet come. And so the law serves as this guardian over a small child, Israel. The law demands that you surrender your dead works. The law demands that the law, the, the lost run to the cross instead of to the vain attempts to make God happy in an unregenerate state. I think our great illustration of what the law does to somebody is the Apostle Paul himself. As much as any man can be, he was a law keeper. But his keeping of the law was an attempt at self-righteousness. It wasn't a response of love to somebody who had come to God by faith. And Paul finally hit the wall of his own hopelessness in keeping the law. Turn with me just a few pages over to Philippians 3. And in Philippians 3, listen to how Paul was as close to a law keeper as anyone had ever come. And yet it was a hopeless endeavor. Philippians 3, verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, Paul's saying I'm probably the greatest law keeper there's ever been. And he's not boasting, he's saying, but even that's not enough. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, to his knowledge, Paul kept every law he possibly could. But Paul hit the wall of not being able to truly obey God from his heart. It was all external. And in fact, Romans 7 describes the agony of his pre-salvation self. Romans 7, 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so Paul gave up on his good works to please God. He not only gave up on them, he despised them and he utterly said they're worthless. Philippians 3 verse 7. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, all of these so-called good works I've been doing, they've they've not counted for me. They've counted against me because they were done in self-righteousness. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What did the law do for Paul? It was a witness against him, and it drove him where? To the cross. It drove him because the law demands faith and faith alone to save. Turn back with me now to Deuteronomy 31. Very end of the chapter. The first demand, the law demands attention. The word of God demands attention. The second demand, the word of God demands listening. The third demand, the word of God demands faith. The fourth demand, the word of God demands doxology. It demands doxology. The law demands that glory go to God and to God alone. Now Moses teaches his song to God's people to be taught to each generation to remind them of God's covenant with them. And this is really Moses' swan song. It's both instruction and it's warning. These are some of the last words of Moses recorded. Some have even called it a lawsuit against Israel for their future failure to stay faithful to Israel. And certainly in the future it will be used by the prophets in this fashion as a witness to the past warnings given to Israel when they're moving away from the faithful worship of Yahweh. But for the listener on the banks of the Jordan River, getting ready for the conquest of Canaan, it contains elements of teaching, elements of warning, all around the idea of following the word of God. But we do have to say it's written in a very timeless fashion. Some of the future events are written as if they've already happened. We'll see this in verses 5 and 6, verses 15 and 16 and, and elsewhere. And so it's very timeless. Look at how the song begins with giving God glory. Chapter 31, verse 30. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The introductory stanzas of this song elevate the divine words of God as given through Moses. That this word must be like waters that nourish and give life. And what's the reason? Well, Moses is going to proclaim the name of the Lord. He's going to ascribe greatness to God. It means to give something that is due. It means to place. It means to credit He's crediting greatness to God. He calls God the rock in verse 4. And the rock's works are perfect. His ways are just. He is faithful. He is sinless. And yet, verse 5, they, that is Israel, have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Israel will become guilty of covenant treachery. They'll repay God's kindness and love with iniquity and evil. And in fact, look at why they should be ascribing greatness to God. Look at the reason. It's because of his sovereignty. 
That's what, that's what glorifies God. Verse 6, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Here's his sovereignty. Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? In verses 8 and 9, Moses reminds Israel that God created all the nations, but he chose just one. Verse 9, But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Moses pictures the humble beginnings of Israel as completely helpless, utterly dependent on a sovereign God. Verse 10, he found him in the desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, burying them on its pinions. Moses makes certain that God alone is to receive all credit, to receive all glory. In verse 12, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land and he ate the produce of the field and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. And then in verse 14, just speaks of all the, the provision that the Lord gave to Israel over time. Now, what's the basis for Moses to ascribe greatness to God, to give greatness, to credit him with greatness, to place greatness at the feet of God? Well, it's the fact that God alone is responsible for the existence of Israel. It's the fact that God alone is the one who chose Israel. God alone sustained Israel, going all the way back to caring for an old man named Abraham 600 years earlier. The sovereignty of God is by definition pervasive. It is exhaustive. It's everywhere in Scripture, and it's key to our core understanding of God. And I'll have to say this. To say that, yes, I believe that God is sovereign, but I also believe in free will for salvation. Well, by definition, then, you don't believe that God is sovereign. Because sovereignty is pervasive. It's over everything. By definition, you don't believe God is sovereign over everything, and if God isn't sovereign over everything, then there are some things over which God is not in control, and if there are some things that God is not controlling, then the logical possibility exists that God could lose control of more things. If God can logically lose control of more things, He can logically lose control of everything, most importantly, you. It is the sovereignty of God which demands that all glory go to Him and Him alone. Those two are inextricably woven together. Glory and sovereignty. The Word of God doesn't drive us to congratulate ourselves on somehow choosing God. No, the Word of God drives us to the terrifying reality that if God had not chosen you for salvation, you would not be saved. It's this reality that causes us to bless God. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But you see, when sinful humanity strays more and more from the Word of God, less and less glory goes to Him because our sinful intuition is to try to take credit for salvation at some level, isn't it? That's always our intuition. That somehow there must have been something in me that God saw. There must have been some spark of goodness. There must have been some potential that God saw. 
God recognized it, and therefore he saved me. And yes, salvation is by grace, but I'm thankful that I had that little spark. Now, nobody will say that out loud, but if you don't ascribe all glory to God, that's what you're actually saying. To believe that God saved you because of something inherently worth saving is the height of arrogance and frankly could be considered heresy. What was in you worth saving? Biblically, nothing. Nothing. Romans 3.12 says you were utterly worthless because you despised the very God who made you and gave you life on this earth. Let me put it to you this way. To believe that God saved you because something in you was worth saving is like running into the house of God and finding the, the, the treasure chest where his glory is kept and when nobody is looking, opening that treasure chest and just grabbing a little bit of that glory and stuffing it in your jacket and running out before anybody sees. It is to run into the house of God and steal the glory that is rightly his. All glory goes to God, not most, all. And by saying that there was a spark in me or I made a free will choice to come to God. You have run into the temple of God, stolen glory from his treasure chest and said, I want some of this. In our context, as believers, and I think most of you are convinced of that truth already, but how about this one? Neither can you just hear the word of God and not, and not ascribe glory and honor to him. This is blasphemous. To hear the word of God and be somehow neutral? To hear the word of God and somehow be indifferent? To be apathetic? You can't just sit under the preached word of God and then say, I'm not really getting anything out of this. Whose fault is that? This is the eternal word. You are uneternal beings. It must be your fault. You can't just say, I'm not really growing spiritually and think that you aren't denigrating and insulting God by stealing glory from him. I say this for your benefit and not for mine at all, but I would encourage you every time you hear the word of God preached that on your drive home or if you're listening electronically that you take a moment and you say, this was the very word of God presented to me and God, I give you glory and honor for taking the the effort to reveal yourself to me when you had no obligation to do so. The word of God demands doxology. Praise God from whom what? All blessings flow. The first demand, the word of God demands attention. It demands listening. It demands faith. It demands doxology. Fifth, the word of God demands fear. You're saying this is just getting worse. Well, the song of Moses continues. Listen to the tone and the tenor of most of this song. Chapter 32, verse 15. But Jeshurun... It's a nickname for Israel. But Jezurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. 
So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them and the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall be reeve and indoors terror for young man and woman alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory had I not feared provocation by the enemy lest their adversaries be misunderstood, lest they should say our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. For they are a nation void of counsel and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and their Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal and there is none that can deliver out of my hand for I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long haired heads of the enemy. Do you understand that God is imprinting deep into the minds of Israel that he is almighty God and you will fear him? He has taken every possible way to punish his people and outlined it. And he has created fear. Jonathan Edwards, the famous Puritan of the 18th century in America, preached probably one of the most famous sermons ever preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he preached that sermon from Deuteronomy 32, 35, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand. And the second time he preached that sermon, interestingly, the first time he preached it in his own church and nobody thought anything of it. Second time he preached it to people outside of his church and people were weeping and wailing and crying out and telling him to stop. Because they were so moved by their own terror of God. If that song won't move you to tremble before God, if that doesn't cause your guts to turn over, then you're not grasping that God is at war with you if you have not come to faith in Christ. 
Here's the proper response to the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you and I am afraid of your judgments. But just when you're terrified out of your wits, of this all-consuming God who's devised infinite ways to punish sin, the song of Moses ends on an upbeat note. The first demand, the word of God demands attention, it demands listening, it demands faith, it demands doxology, it demands fear. Sixth, the word of God demands hope. It demands hope. The last verse of the song, verse 43, Rejoice with him, O heavens, Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Now, if this still sounds terrifying, look at the last phrase. He cleanses his people's land. What does that mean? It means there will still be some who are his people. After all the judgment of God is washed over humanity, and when the flood of the fire of judgment has subsided there will be standing a remnant some who will not fall to the wrath of god against sin god will save some and now the terrifying wrath of god isn't something you fear it's something you hide behind as it happens to somebody else no longer are you facing god in his fury now you're hiding behind him he's not the rock that falls on you he's the rock which gives you safety and refuge And listen, the word of God doesn't just give hope. It demands hope of salvation. It demands it. Just as an example, you don't have to turn there. In 1 Corinthians 15, in which Paul is explaining the hope of bodily resurrection and eternal life in Christ, he doesn't just say, brothers, isn't it sweet that God is going to save us for all eternity? Doesn't that just make you feel warm? It's not what he says. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Or death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be the God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain the word of god doesn't just give hope it demands it it demands it well one more demand the word of god demands authority the word of god demands authority chapter 32 verse 44 moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people he and joshua the son of Nun. and when moses had finished speaking all these words to all israel he said to them Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Moses cries out to Israel, take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today. He says, it is no empty word for you. It's a word that means it's not vain, it's not idle, it's not pointless. And he said, it is your life. Now listen very, very carefully. When Moses says, it is your life, it's not just a statement of, everyone should read their Bibles and apply it to their life. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, it is by the word of God that you will live And it is by the word of God that you will die. Those are your two choices. There are no other options. The word stands as judge over the one who would reject God. 
The Word of God will have the last word over the lost. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. The unsaved rebel will not only have the books of his own sins opened, Revelation 20, but his sins will be compared to the open book of the standard of God's holiness as revealed in the Word of God. And what will the finding be? The finding will be that the lost person did put other gods before the true God, that the lost person did make images of false gods out of money or selfishness or power or lust, that he did pretend to be a believer and therefore took God's name in vain, that he did refuse to worship God and enter into the Sabbath rest of Christ, that he did not from a pure heart honor his mother and father, that he did murder others by having wicked, violent thoughts, that he did commit adultery in every form of sexual sin, that he did steal that which he thought should be his and it wasn't, that he did bear false witness and use dishonesty to elevate himself, that he did believe he was more deserving of what others had and coveted what was not his. Can I put it this way? Your life will be measured by the standard of the word of God. And if you're not in Christ, you will be found lacking all the way across the board. And for the one who's in Christ, who's come to the cross to find forgiveness and be credited with the very life of Christ for you. While the word of God will not be the basis for your eternal judgment, because that fell on Christ at the cross and we're thankful for that. The word still cuts and exposes and reveals. Why is that? The word of God demands to be the sole authority of your life. It demands it. Search the scriptures for answers. Don't find a proof text that somehow seems to back up your own opinion. Don't be caught doing what you've taught, been taught over and over again not to do. Let me put it to you this way. You hear the Word of God twice every Sunday. You own the Bible, which you ought to be reading every day. You can study the Bible from a thousand different vantage points in our modern age. The Israelites were expected to obey the law of God, which they heard one time every seven years. Stop testing your behavior and your thoughts against only your conscience. Test it against the Word of God. Yes, your conscience is useful, but only to a point. On the one hand, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. On the other hand, he said in 1 Corinthians 4, 4, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. By this word you shall live. Well, one last thing. You notice that um, in that song, God is called the rock about a half dozen times. And if you know your New Testament, this is familiar to you. There's no mystery to the metaphor of the rock. It's an immovable boulder. It's something to stand on. It's something to stand behind. It provides safety. Who is the rock that Moses sang of? 1 Corinthians 10.4, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. And in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ in probably the greatest sermon ever preached used the metaphor of the rock to speak of the choice that all humanity has to build his eternal destiny on the false hopes of human wisdom and be damned for all eternity or to build his eternal destiny on the word of God. 
And he closes this great sermon by saying, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. I know it's late. I want you to repeat after me. For it is no empty word for you. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. But your very life. For it is no empty word for you. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. But your very life. For it is no empty word for you. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Your very life. Even Moses had to bear the temporary consequences of disobeying the word of God. The end of chapter 32, that very day the Lord spoke to Moses. Go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people. As Aaron, your brother, died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel. Verse 52 For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. Repeat after me, for it is no empty word for you. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. But your very life. For it is no empty word for you. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. But your very life. For it is no empty word for you. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. But your very life. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, oh, we praise and thank you that you have given us in a book that weighs less than a pound and is less than an inch thick depending on the print size. In this document that we can hold in our hand is revealed all that we need for life and godliness. All that we must know of you, all that we must know of mankind. The cross is revealed. Our Savior Christ is revealed. Our heavenly future is revealed. How kind you are. How gracious you are, our God. And we are reminded of your great words that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. May we be believers in Christ, devoted to the sole authority of the word of God. May that characterize our lives And may you make us prosperous and successful as a result. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.